You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. I'm JR. Hello, I'm Simon. And I'm Matt. And two weeks ago, when we did everything in 60 minutes flat, we actually went 20 seconds over, and we missed out the next Doctor. Matt, eight seconds on the next Doctor. It's it's okay. I, I think it's it was actually more of a disappointment because we expected David Moore, we expected a big twist, we expected David Moore, and they undercut that, I think, quite early on. But I liked him, I liked the cyber... The cyber King Emperor. <laughs> and we also missed out the gunfighters. Simon, eight seconds on the gunfighters. <laughs> I've never watched it. <laughs> oh, that's all right. It just makes I, you sound like Andy. I've heard the editor with all the song put together and what have you, and it's. I, I was I expecting. Know. I was expecting us to be asked this today, and I. Yeah, you knew. I could see in your face. You knew that was coming. I kind of thought. The gunfighters, it's almost like a template for the new set. It's like an example of how to do something completely unusual because it's a musical, because it's got the musical elements. That's sort of what they do in the modern, with modern series now, like Buffy and Inside Number Nine. So it's actually quite sort of ahead of its time. I can't believe I haven't watched it because it's like a rag to a ball with me. If I hear people really slating a story, or if it's like a real Marmite story, it just makes me want to watch it more. It said it hasn't been slated for it since Jeremy Bentham did it in mm. Doctor Who Celebration. I don't know, it still gets a fairly hard time. Only by, only by, senior, by some people, senior citizen yeah. fans. It's probably the song <clears throat> that sets people off. Then. <clears throat> yeah. To be fair, though, when you when it was originally on, that song, you heard two snatches of it in each episode, and then you didn't see Doctor Who again for a week, mm. and you never watched it in between and all this kind of stuff, and you certainly didn't sit down and watch all four episodes in one go. Mm. I just I discovered the Doctor Who 50th anniversary incidental music collection on Amazon Prime, which I can listen to for free. The four it's, box? It's the like four, the... four discs. of I listen to it at work whilst processing forms. Oh, that's on them. Another streaming service as well. Yes, yes. It's quite absorbing. Have yourself lucky, Matt. I've got the eleven disc version. Really, disc for each Doctor. Wow. I've got the four disc version as well. The entire TV movie soundtracks on there. Really? Yeah, which is quite nice actually. Really, to have the sort of. But they've got they've got the gun for the the complete song from the Gunfighters. Yeah. Does it it stick on time? 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 Sweet. I don't think that song's on there. It's the incidental music score. Okay. That is available anyway, that track. <clears throat> I thought. Probably. It's mm. like a song by somebody, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The the first two discs, a lot of it's not incidental music. It's just it's sound ambient, effects ambient and noise. Stuff. But that's quite, it's quite cool. Especially if you're working. Yeah, okay. Just the sort of sound of the, the Dalek city throbbing. <clears throat> is there much Kev <clears throat> McCullough yeah. in it? Well, the good I like, and I I say again, I like Kef McCulloch. I got when I was younger. I got heavily into the twenty fifth anniversary 
collection that had drinks map dawning from <laughs> from uh, the Paradise Towers. Yeah, yeah. From Paradise Towers. Yeah. Oh. Uh, and all the music from uh, oh. Remembrance of the Daleks. It was really good. And, good? Uh, and Delton Barrett. I really got it. Okay. I can I can still I actually got it actually became earworms for me. Kef McCulloch music. Okay. Let's move on. Okay. <clears throat> right, this is our Series 10 preview, we always sit down and do a preview, even though we don't do spoilers, so I don't think any of us really knows anything that's not really in the public domain, so there's really precious little to talk about. <laughs> I was mad. <laughs> but... I might even watch that latest trailer. I haven't. No, I haven't. I have. Yeah, good for you. No, I, I walked into the what room could... as it was on, but the sound is was the, off. Has the, has the trailer been officially released? No. Yes. So it's a BBC surely, trailer that went surely out Surely watching it is part of the experience of seeing it. I, have, I struggle to understand a reluctance to watch trailers because trailers are designed by the production team. So they become part of the series itself. Trailers. And they, they kind of twist, <clears throat> offer, sometimes offer twists on the series. So yeah. I don't think you get the full experience of watching the series without <clears throat> watching the official re- officially released promotional material now because they're so intelligently so there's something like Rogue One where you've got the cuts that didn't actually end up in the film so they're very confusing yes yeah some Hollywood trailers are badly put together because they're put together by sort of marketing machines but you can tell that a lot of the promotional material for Doctor Who's been put together with well Stephen they're running through a corridor and they get to a door yes right so all you really need to know is there's something behind the door well that's specially shot footage though that's not from the series well, true, but uh, then there's a reason why that specially foot, specially shot footage emphasises a door. Hmm. And we, you know, I guess we'll find out what that reason is when we watch the programme. Okay. But no, it's specially shot to emphasise a door. Okay. Now, whether it turns out... Yeah, well, whether it turns out that there's a door... In the program somewhere, which I suspect it probably will do, at some point, probably towards the end of the series, there'll be something to do with the door that's significant. I I didn't find the door to be the most exciting thing about the trailer. Well, you're not designed to find the door the most exciting thing about the trailer. (laughs) I'm just, but we seem to be focused on the door, on the door rather than the other things in the trailer. Well, we'll talk about the other things in the trailer as we go through the episode. Okay, well, we can start on the door. On the door. Yeah, well, all right, but the, before we talk about Series 10, there's a load of, well, we haven't recorded for a month, mm-hmm. and a load of things have happened in the month that I think, I don't know, some of them are relevant, and some of them are not relevant, and some of them are just things I want to get off my chest, but they're worth bringing up. So, let's have a little chat about some of these things first, but um, one thing I need to do is say the music from the our 250th episode was by Wesley Smith. I forgot to say that. So, got to give him his due. And also, I noticed listening back, and this was after the edit was all locked in and the episode had been uploaded to the website, that the the Omega's Tat Corner segment was the Who's He podcast and they forgot to say what they were. So, if anybody's wondering what that Omega's Tat Corner bit was all about, that's the Who's He podcast. Um, and as I speak, that episode's not gone out yet. But I mean, obviously, when it does go out, I'll be posting full lists of everybody who's on there. Um, <clears throat> one of the things I wanted to bring up was the Danny Dyer thing. 
Okay. Yeah. Right. I mean, everybody who's listening presumably knows what I'm talking about. But if anybody doesn't, at some point a few weeks ago, Danny Dyer apparently threw his hat in the ring for Doctor Who. And a lot of fans were up in arms saying, how very dare he? And all this kind of stuff. I mean, I don't think I've watched or listened to or whatever, but I've read the quotes. That guy was patently joking, right? Yeah. Well, also, it's not a, it's not unusual for for actors to say, "Yeah, I'll play Doctor Who." Oh no! And but what I mean is, he wasn't even in the ring, isn't he? Yeah. But he wasn't being remotely serious about it. No. He was saying, he obviously he was doing this interview shortly after Peter Capaldi had said he was leaving, mm. and obviously he was just saying to the interviewer, "Yeah, all right, give us a scarf, give us a robot dog, I'll do it." Yeah. And he obviously wasn't being remotely serious, and yet the reaction to it was as if he'd sort of, you know, killed a sacred baby or something. Mm. Well, the number <clears> one <throat> effect was people were talking like it was serious, so therefore other people were coming on later on. Yeah, but I guess saying, I guess it's really it's this time of the process where anything like that is picked up by the media because they're mm. looking for any kind of showbiz story to do with Doctor Who. So because it's picked up by the media, that kind of gives it kind of authenticity. Which and then Doctor Who the makes more credulous, great credulous fans <laughs> then decide it's, it's in the media. But as we know, as Donald Trump has taught us, the media is full of fake news. Yes, just because it's written on a website that belongs to a newspaper or a magazine doesn't mean to say it's no. true. No. <clears throat> Bad. Um, right, I've got a mad idea to throw out there. And again, when I throw this mad idea out there, I'm not being entirely serious. But before I do, Chris Chibnall's holiday seems to be another stick that certain people are using to beat people around with. You're going to have to tell us what Chris Chibnall's holiday is. Right. Has he gone on holiday? Yeah. Okay, that's all right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the thing. This is the thing. The... If you've got so much more important things to think about than go on holiday, surely. Surely, are they not confusing Chris Chibnall with Donald Trump, who who does go on holiday and plays Plays golf? golf, And that's probably, you know, a justifiable criticism. If you look at what's happened over the last two years, obviously Stephen Moffat was going to leave at the end of Series 9, and the BBC were intending to bring in his replacement with Series 10, which would have presumably followed either late in 2016 or early in 2017 if there'd been another 18-month break. And what happened was the guy they wanted was Chris Chibnall and he was already locked in to do Broadchurch Series 3 with ITV. So the BBC said, OK, we'll do that anyway. And Stephen Moffat was obviously a party to this and Stephen Moffat stepped in and said, right, if you have me finish in 2015 and Chris Chibnall's first series doesn't go out till 2017, you're going to have an entire year with no... 2018, sorry, not 2017. You're going to have, well, two and a half years without any Doctor Who, so how about I do another series for you in the meantime? So the idea was that Series 10 would go back to the spring, and they were hoping and possibly intending and planning that Chris Chibnall would have finished Broadchurch in time to get Series 11 into production by the summer of this year so that it could go out in the spring of 2018. Now, whether Broadchurch overran or whether it was always due to be this late, 
I don't know. I suspect it's probably overrun. So what's that? What's actually happened? He's so he's well. Doing... I'm getting to that. Okay. But the the point I'm about to make is, generally speaking, a new series you'll put on in January, mm. and Broadchurch has started in March, which suggests to me that it's probably a couple of months later than ITV would have planned, which which basically means it's taking Chris Chibnall two months longer to make. So he's two months behind. So he would have been due to start work on Doctor Who in March. Obviously, all these months are conjecture by me. Right. But I'm assuming he would have been due to start on Doctor Who in March for them to go into production in about July. Right. But seeing as Broadchurch won't be finished its run until, what, May? He's two months behind. So Doctor Who couldn't possibly go into production until say, August or September at the earliest. So it's not going to be ready for a spring 2018 start. It's going to be... So so hang on, but Broadchurch is in the can, so Chibnall's not working on Broadchurch anymore. Chibnall is the producer of Broadchurch. Yeah, but it's in the can. They've no, fin- They've finished it's... filming Broadchurch now, and he's finished... They haven't finished editing it. He's in charge of the editing as well. Okay, but he... Well, okay. But he's gone on holiday. Did people say? No, he's going on holiday once okay. he's finished broadcasting. And is is there some? Indica- uh, when I say he's going on holiday, right? You're taking me far too literally. No, no. I've... The point is that Chris Chibnall is officially still on Broadchurch till it finishes its production, and then he said, "I'm going to take a break before I start work on Doctor Who." Right. Okay. So okay. Chris Chibnall's holiday right. has become okay. this stick <laughs> okay. Okay. with which fandom is beating Chris Chibnall because he won't have Doctor Who ready for a spring 2018 start. Right. So it's going to be back in the autumn again. It's going to be another 18 months between okay. series. Right. Which is again an overreaction, right? Fine. If he's been working on Broadchurch Series 3 for the last year, 18 months, probably without anything much of a break, because even if you take a break while you're in the middle of something like that, you never actually stop really working on it. I think it's just, if he wants to take a couple of months off before he starts on Doctor Who, that's absolutely fair enough, isn't it? And that's just he, normal, he, isn't he it? He says he's not going to start working on Doctor Who for a couple of months. <clears throat> But obviously, it's I going to be percolating it, in his head. And I assume he'll probably start writing it when he talks about working on it. He'll mean pre-production, well, in the office and writing. But actually, well, the impression that's been given I'd is be that surprised if he hasn't already. You know, no, the impression that's been given is that he won't sit down to start writing it until like summer. Yeah, presumably. I right, he's probably still. I think he's probably already written. Well, it's hard to say because... It's a significant portion of a first script. Well, yeah, but I, I'm not sure because I'm not sure whether you'd actually sit down and put any words in a document until you've cast the actor. Okay. So maybe, even if he has an idea in his head and even if he's written down bits of treatment and maybe bits of scenes, I don't think he'll actually sit down and do a script mm. until either he has an actor or at the very least a very definite idea of what kind of an actor he's going to have. Mm. So not necessarily that he started writing no, it at all. No. And the, certainly the impression that was given was that he wasn't going to start writing until the summer. Yeah. And then, as we know, it takes several months from starting writing the first script to actually being able to... And then there's a big juggernaut of other people to get into place, such as the people who are going to write the other episodes right at the top. Danny Doyle. 
and okay. right down to the carpenters or building the sets at the bottom. Mm. So, but the main point is there's going to be another 18-month break between seasons of Doctor Who, which doesn't appear to be what the BBC were planning. But then, you know, I think they'd rather have Doctor Who with the showrunner they want than, you know, every 18 months than Doctor Who every year with people that they wouldn't shows, necessarily trust to keep it popular. It shows the difference between Doctor Who now and Doctor Who back in the day when it was treated more like a soap opera with a fixed start time. Yeah, yeah. And a, like a, a set time. Now Doctor Who is more like something like Sherlock where they give the writers and the actors time to be available because they know what sort of property it is. Well, if you look at the... What potential property it is. If you look at the viewing figures that Sherlock gets, right... Mm. The first episode of Series 4 got 12 million viewers. And then even after ITV put um, Endeavour up against the next two episodes, they still got like 9 or 10 million viewers. No programmes in this country get viewing figures like that anymore. Sherlock, even the ones with 9 or 10 million viewers, were still like a million above the number two television programme in the charts for that week. Sherlock was just head and shoulders out above anything else that was on television. And for for a programme like Sherlock to be that far out, rather than, say, a football match or a soap opera or a royal wedding or... Yeah, yeah. For, for, for a drama, particularly quite an involved, complicated, high-end... Yeah. But particularly... Well, I mean... Oh, yeah. well, sarcasm. Yeah, yeah. But, but, is, but Cumberbatch will have a lot to do with it. But they, it is... They basically got a television programme with Doctor Strange in it. But it, That's going to be... Yeah, no, but the, the viewing figures were like that way before... Yeah. No, it's yeah. the other way around, really. He's Doctor Strange because of the viewing figures for Sherlock, not the other way around. Yes, yeah. But, but the point is, it's quite an esoteric programme, and yet you know, something like a fifth of the country is watching it, which is astonishing. And Doctor Who doesn't get viewing figures quite like that. But relatively speaking, Doctor Who gets viewing figures a lot closer to that than it does to, you know, something like Primeval or whatever else. And, and the BBC knows it's got the potential to get viewing figures like that. Yeah, and, and worldwide. Which is, we, which is what we always said after David Tennant. There's... There's no way it can go back now to to the status it was in the 1980s because the BBC now knows it's a series that can come back and achieve great success. So they'll constantly, there might be gaps between them, but they'll always try to bring it back and try and get that success again. Back in 2008, on a... I think it might have been on the old Doctor Who magazine Facebook group, there was a conversation about the fact that it was taking a year off and then we had the specials year. Um, and one thing I said then was I could foresee a time, given how expensive it is to make and how work intensive it is to make, because unlike, say, something like Endeavour, where you come up with four episodes once a year and they're all set in and around Oxford and each episode is basically a generic idea there's a crime this is the copper who solves it Mm. doctor who is like 
12 episodes a year, which might comprise something like... No, it's more than 12 episodes a year. At the time it was 14, even now it's 13, which might comprise 10 or 11 different stories. And each one of those stories not only involves a new cast, because you'd still have a new cast on something like Endeavour, but it also involves an entirely new location, an entirely new theme or tone for the story as well. That's a lot more work intensive than something like Endeavour. There's no other program. Yeah, it's like a separate production. There's no like other that. program like Doctor Who. Mm. In 2008, so I was say what Matt was saying. Well, I'd better get to the end of what go I was on, saying. Go on. Well, in 2008, I said I could foresee a time where they'd make a series every 18 months rather than once a year because it was so work intensive, mm. and that I and crucially that I didn't think that would dent its popularity because. And this is the thing. One of the things that fans say is, oh, it must be on once a year, otherwise people forget about it. And it's like, no. The soap opera must be on three times a week, five times a week. Otherwise people get out of the habit of watching it. But if Doctor Who's only on for three months of the year anyway, Mm. it doesn't make any difference then whether it's 15 months or nine months till the next time it's on for three months of the year. If it's on for three months, they'll watch it for that three months. Mm. And it's not what drama does anymore. It's not what American drama... I mean, <clears throat> network American drama doesn't it, but cable American drama, they wait until it's ready. They waited with Hannibal. They're going to wait with Game of Thrones yeah, to get it right because it's so so popular. It's a, it's a sign of success. It's a sign of commitment that the BBC are willing to wait for the right people to get on board to make the series rather than it's not a, sign, than of, just it's not a sign of the BBC thinking, well... We'll give it a rest because we're worried about it. It's mm. the complete opposite. I think. Well, what I was going to say yeah. it was like you were saying about where the BBC will wait and they know that it comes back and it can be successful. Mm. Is in that respect, like you, you were saying, Joe, or is it, it is a one-off because it's almost as much a format as it is a, a, a typical TV program. Mm. So in that respect, like you say, you can come back and you can reshape it, but it's still yeah. essentially the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wait, isn't it, mm, I was going to say it's an anthology yes. series with recurring characters. Mm. And there's nothing else quite like that. And sometimes the characters change. Well, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's why I stopped myself. Yeah. yeah, it's a with a recurring named character yes. who might yeah. be a completely different person anyway. Okay, here's the mad idea I had, oh. <clears throat> which I, I, which is not something that I think there's remotely any possibility will happen. But nevertheless. I was listening to, and this is what put the idea in my head, but it's an idea that's been in my head actually since 2008, same time as the year, talking about the year of specials in the 18 months. And I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but here's a new iteration of it. So why not? Let's throw it out there. I was listening to, was it 42 to Doomsday or who's next? I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about, I think it was David Kitchen on 42 to Doomsday. Well, he's this, been on this, this podcast, is the, the yeah. Ronnie Corbett approach. Yeah, to, to, yeah. to telling us what the hell your mad idea is. <laughs> well, no, no. You have to contextualise okay. the idea, otherwise okay. the idea itself doesn't make any sense. Okay, go on. The context was, somebody said, they thought, well, it's an odd thing to do to have Series 10 and then have Peter Capaldi regenerate at Christmas. Because you have this standing alone episode it's not even like the specials where you had like the waters and mars running into it although actually russell t davis didn't do anything with that but he could have and maybe should have but to have series 10 finishing in june 
And then six months later, there's this single episode where Peter Capaldi regenerates. I think people think it didn't work with Matt Smith. And so they think perhaps it wouldn't work again with Peter Capaldi. And I think one of the guys on 42 to Doomsday said, well, what if Peter Capaldi regenerates at the end of series 10? Mm. And then you get the Christmas special being the debut episode for the next Doctor. Mm. And either Chris Chibnall comes in early and writes it, or else Stephen Moffat gets to write the first episode of the next Doctor. And patently, that idea is silly. Because Chris Chibnall is going to want to start with his new Doctor at the start of his series, so that you get a series to introduce the new Doctor. And it would mean that the new Doctor's already been cast, presumably. Well, or would be by the time they filmed it, which would presumably be around July. And obviously Stephen Moffat's not going to write the first episode of a new incoming Doctor that somebody else is going to take over, so that wouldn't make any sense either. Now, you will remember me saying that I thought Russell T. Davis had missed an opportunity with that year of specials where Tennant should have gone in Journey's End. Mm. And then the 15-hour rule that he introduced in The Christmas Invasion, he could have used the four specials to have four one-off Doctors, each of whom lasted less than 15 hours fiction time and each of whom did a one-hour special television time. And you could have had four people who would never have signed up for an entire series, let alone three years of nine-month shoots in a row, people like Joanna Lumley or Hugh Grant or whatever, could each have come in and do, well, here's my mad idea. Peter Capaldi regenerates at the end of series 10, Mm. and because they don't start filming the Christmas special till July, nobody tells us that until episode 12 goes out. And at the end of episode 12, it finishes with a regeneration scene that... Joanna Lumley or whoever has come in for an hour to shoot so he doesn't even get spoiled. So at the end of the final episode of series 10, all of a sudden you get a regeneration. You get Joanna Lumley sitting up. The entire audience goes, what? And because Chris Chibnall doesn't start filming his Doctor Who until January, you're left until Christmas, where the obviously viewing figures go through the roof on the Christmas special for for people to find out whether Joanna Lumley actually is the new Doctor or not. You have a one-off 60-minute special written by Stephen Moffat who is, let's face it, the best writer to do something mad like this. Mm. At the end of which, again, you get a regeneration scene at the end of it and that's where you actually get to find out who the new Doctor that Chris Chibnall has cast is, ahead of that actor starting recording the Chris Chibnall episodes in January. That's a completely insane idea. Obviously, it's not going to happen, but it's exactly the kind of thing I'd like to do in Doctor Who, and it's especially the kind of thing I'd like to see in Doctor Who. It's fun. My problem... <laughs> the problem I Matt, have you with... have a problem with everything. The, the problem I have, and I'm not sure if this is just a problem... There's something, there's something meaningful about a long-running current Doctor changing into the next long-running current Doctor. So by, by turning Capaldi's regeneration scene into effectively a gag teaser for a Christmas special instead of that first sight of the new Doctor, I think that diminishes the potential regeneration. There's something about Matt <clears throat> Smith's regeneration into into Capaldi, it had greater weight because you knew that he was going to be the ongoing Doctor, or Mm. David Tennant. I mean, they're they're always a sort of humorous bit at the end, but you've got that that kind of new Doctor first sight of it, and you know that they're going to be complete. But you don't know it's a gag until you've watched the Christmas special. 
Well, it depends on, well, yeah. That's the entire point. This person who sits up well, at the end in of that, series in that case, 12, the Christmas special, series 10. The Christmas special would diminish the regeneration story. Well, no, because I, I think it, the opposite would be the case. I right. think the fact that if Peter Capaldi regenerates in an episode that's six months after his last ongoing episode and eight or nine months before the next Doctor's first ongoing episode, I think that diminishes it. I think that's why but, the but time then, of the Doctor is regarded as not a very good regeneration story. But then you've got a second regeneration story with the Christmas in the Christmas special, and that would undercut the Capaldi, the Capaldi regeneration story. You've got two regeneration stories in a row. One, the weighty one, which is good by Peter Capaldi, <clears throat> and one which is... I mean, I like the idea, because I like the idea of someone like, say, well, Benedict Cumberbatch playing the, <clears throat> trying to play the Doctor for... For 60 minutes. For 60 minutes. That's a cute, it's a cute idea, and it's, it's tempting. But I think it would diminish... I think it would diminish but only, Capaldi's leaving. It would only diminish Capaldi's leaving for that 1% of fans that cares about this kind of thing. And for the 99% of the rest of the viewers, it would become the most exciting thing that's happened in Doctor Who since David Tennant started to regenerate at the end of The Stolen Earth. Yeah, and I think I'm... as far as people who make Doctor Who are concerned, that probably outweighs the other concerns. Plus, I said, I don't think for a second it's going to happen. Yeah. I just threw the idea out there as... Something that I think one day somebody might actually say, well, hang on, why don't we do something like this? I mean, I, th- I think I'd, I'd, what I'd have liked to have seen is the faked regeneration that David Tennant had. I'd have liked to have seen them carry on with that, fulfil <clears throat> that, and actually bring in the new Doctor with that. I think that would have been a powerful moment. Well, I've said that a before. Powerful yeah. moment. Mm-hmm. But I think that would be a powerful moment because you wouldn't be expecting it. Well, the stolen, not the stolen earth, Journey's End would have been much better if the handy doctor had been David Tennant carrying on through that episode Mm. so that we still had David Tennant in it so that nobody doing spoilers on set would have been aware that he'd left. Mm. And the actual next doctor, Matt Smith, say, being the other doctor in that story, the second episode of that two-parter would have been so much better if instead of David Tennant playing both doctors... Tennant had been playing the handy Doctor and yeah. the new Doctor himself had actually been in. And I like the idea. I like the idea of a surprise regeneration. Yeah. A, an actor you don't expect. A regeneration taking place at a point that you don't expect. But I am... Maybe it is just me being the 1%. I want to see <clears> one <throat> Doctor turning into the next Doctor, not a kind of an interim Christmas Doctor. I think it works with John Hurt bringing in an actor who, who hasn't played the Doctor. I think they've done that. And it was John Hurt. And it worked because he was brought in with parallel with the other two Doctors. Mm. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, I'm not sure if there's anything else. I think there's probably a couple of other things, but then we can start talking about Series 10 in a minute. We've got Doctor Who magazine, and more importantly, Starburst magazine's preview of Series 10 in front of us. You have to look at who it's from, Matt. Tell you what, they yeah, could I do, saw, I've seen who it's from. I was trying to read it. They could do a really cheap Christmas episode, like they used to do an old TV series where they do a cheap episode with showing bits from the past, where <laughs> the Doctor starts to, to regenerate. I think, I, before you've even finished, I think I prefer mine idea to oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I was thinking, he can start regenerating, he spends the whole episode regenerating, so he's in the corner, blasting away. Mm. He's caught with some kind of time vortex type thing. 
Okay. And then everyone else is talking about, oh, wasn't he a great doctor? Yeah, it was really good. Oh, do you remember that time when this happened? Or... So it could be, <laughs> be like, happy days. Funny. It would be a clips show. It would what be you're a clips saying. show. <laughs> <laughs> the, the one time Doctor does a Doctor Who does a clips show. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what do a clip show of a Doctor who's never existed? You mean? Sorry. Do a clip show of a Doctor who's never existed. What well, turn left, oh, but know. actually applied to the real series. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, be quite good if it was little clips of adventures that we'd never seen. Of yeah. Peter Capaldi, that would be really cool. No, no, no. Do a clip show where Peter Capaldi falls, falls to the floor dying. Yeah. And he's got, I don't know, an ood standing next to him. And the ood says, you're about to regenerate into your 13th body. And he scratches his chin and he says, don't you mean 14th? And the ood says, what are you talking about? And then all of a sudden you start getting a bunch of clips with Joanna Lumley fighting um, the Daleks and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Maybe not, but yeah, yeah, it might be irritating. <laughs> it, oh no, it would be irritating. That would be the entire point of it. Yes, yeah. <clears throat> um. Oh, I tell you what. One more thing before we go. Class. Before we go. Before we go into series. Oh 10. right, okay. Class. 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 <laughs> what. BBC throwing them on in double headers on BBC One in the middle of the night. What? It's, I don't know, the way the BBC have treated class has just been utterly ridiculous, hasn't mm. it? I haven't seen it yet. And <laughs> Well, you are missing out. Yeah, I'm But sure, I'm by sure. the same token, it's not aimed at people our age, no, so no. you might not be missing out that much. Um, the online thing on iPlayer or whatever mm. the amount of views it was getting were sort of in the general ballpark that something on BBC3 would have got in viewing figures mm. so it was actually watched online by somewhere in the region of the same number of people who would have watched it had it been broadcast on BBC3 mm. so then and then, and this is kind of the entire point, is that it was a BBC Three programme. So then the BBC broadcast it at a, in a time slot that I think would have worked if they'd shown it one episode at a time. Because to sit down for 45 minutes after news night or whatever on a Monday and watch something is much less of an ask than for you to sit down and watch that thing for 90 minutes for uh, the same amount of time as a film would take, starting at damn near 11 o'clock at night, right? Mm. So to broadcast it like that was utterly ridiculous. Mm. But the viewing figures themselves, one of the things that people have been saying is, oh, it's getting ridiculously low viewing figures, and it's getting viewing figures that are smaller than the BBC average in that time slot. Mm. Well, kind of part of the reason the viewing figures are smaller than the BBC's average in that time slot is because, you know, three quarters of a million people have already watched it. Mm. Mm. So those people aren't necessarily going to sit there and watch it, it for a second time. They'll watch something else on one of the other channels, right? Is it also not part of the so part of the deal about BBC? Have you already said this? Part of the deal about the BBC Three going online only is that but there has anything to be broadcast has, to be, has to be shown on yeah. terrestrial television so they just slotted it into a late night slot mm. yeah. and anybody that's really interested you get I mean it doesn't really matter because you get iPlayer and catch up and oh absolutely DVRs. and here's the thing the viewing figures were for the because they put out separate viewing figures for the first and second episode for each night right 
So the episode that was in the 10.30 or 10.45 slot would get like two-thirds of a million people, three-quarters of a million people. And then the one after that would get like a quarter or a third of a million Mm. people. Now, probably there's a good chance that people would watch the first episode of the two and then at some point before the next week would watch the second of those on iPlayer rather than stay up to watch it till... Mm midnight or quarter past midnight or whatever it would be interesting to see what the grand total iPlayer download figures were for class because the figures that they put out initially were figures for first week and class is on iPlayer for a year Hmm. I think or near as damn it so actually it's downloads across the year is going to be more important Hmm. than what it's first week figures are If you add together the grand total of iPlayer views plus the figures it got on the BBC. But what I mean is, you know, obviously you'll end up with a completely different figure than just the first week's downloads. But what I mean is, the BBC have made this programme, they've plugged money into it. Obviously, somewhere along the way, something's gone wrong. Either somebody's fallen out with Patrick Ness because they seem to have dismissed it. They didn't advertise it all that much when they put it on the iPlayer. After the first couple of weeks, it disappeared off the front page of the iPlayer. They didn't advertise it at all when they put it on BBC One. And they've been very dismissive of it. And they... I wonder if it's, it suffers slightly from not not being kind of parallel with an actual Doctor Who series. So it's kind of almost seen as a substitute Doctor Who series. By that fans. Didn't, that didn't quite capture the capture the public imagination maybe because of the way it was marketed but also well, because it just didn't it didn't quite get the get the hype it was that's kind of beside the point because i wanted because i'm trying to talk about it objectively without talking about the content of the program mm-hmm. but the public imagination is part of its success i think or that's, failure yes but i'm not talking about whether it was successful now i'm talking about how they marketed it right because the point i was about to make is even if you don't think the con say somebody at the BBC fell out with Patrick Nairs and that's why they've not bothered advertising it and why they've sort of dismissed it as a contractually obliged broadcast on BBC One. Something mm. along those lines. Right. If you've got eight episodes of a programme, regardless of whether you think that programme is any good or not, as the person who's responsible for where it goes in the schedules, you've got to think to yourself on the other side of that coin is it might find an audience and then the broadcast on BBC One will probably stand a good chance of finding a different audience audience than the iPlayer download audience because the iPlayer download audience is only going to be people who are looking for class. Mm. So you broadcast it on BBC One. Even if you broadcast it in that half ten or quarter to eleven slot or whatever it was, if you do it one episode at a time across eight weeks you got far more chance of picking up an audience who would be prepared to stay with it and would maybe go to iPlayer and look up the episodes they missed or whatever than putting it on for 90 minutes at a time where an audience is going to say, well, okay, I might like this, I might not, but I'm not giving it 90 minutes because I want to go to bed in an hour mm. and don't even bother watching it from the start and turn over to Channel 4 or E4 or whatever. Mm. What I'm saying is, regardless of whether they thought the programme was any good or not, because a programme doesn't have to be good to find an audience, right? I mean, obviously, if a programme's good, it stands a better chance. But it doesn't have to be good to find an audience. 
and on a personal opinion, I thought Class was very good. But the point is, they have dismissed it, the BBC. I mean, I saw, I saw it, in some ways, I, I thought they treated it not badly, because I think the whole BBC Three thing at the moment is, in the past, when it was broadcast, they would have tryouts for drama series, they would have pilot episodes, and occasionally one would get made. I think Paul Cornell did a pilot episode of something. But now it's online. It almost seems to me that Class was a pilot series. It was a pilot episode stretched over a whole series. And they tried it out that way and then decided that it didn't really fit in. I think it just didn't really fit in tonally <clears throat> with what the BBC wanted. So, yeah. Well, uh, but one of the big... Um results of all this is that a lot of people are um, saying after there was an article in the mirror or something classes dismissed that it's already been cancelled before Mm -hmm. uh, any potential second series could be made but I don't know what the percentage is I would say probably 50% of the money if not more has come from BBC America Mm. and it's not even gone out on BBC America And BBC America are doing the sensible thing and broadcasting it in the 9 o'clock slot to follow Doctor Who in the 8 o'clock slot when Series 10 goes yeah. out. There's a very good chance that actually Class will get really good figures in on BBC America and will get a second series off the back of that. So I think part of this whole thing is that people are dismissing it far too quickly. Right. And, I, and what I'm saying is I think the BBC themselves have dismissed it far too quickly by giving it this dismissive broadcast, there was no obligation for them to show it in January or whenever it was. They could have held on to it until Doctor Who was on and showed it in like a nine o'clock BBC Two slot when Doctor Who was on. And regardless of whether they thought it was any good or not, actually, that might have brought viewers in who wouldn't otherwise necessarily be watching the BBC at that time on a Saturday night or whatever. You know, at the end of all this, it's too early to jump the gun over whether it's not going to get a second series or whether it will, because I think a lot of that depends on how well it does in America. And I just think it's a bit sad that the BBC sort of turned their back on it. Because as you say, yes, patently, they wanted to see how BBC Three as an online platform rather than a broadcast, broadcast platform would work. And Class was part of the trial for that. And like I say, the downloads on Class were roughly comparable with the viewing figures that BBC Three were getting. Hmm. So in that respect, I'd say it was a success. Because even if the the download figures were like half of what BBC Three were getting, like I say, with download, it's something you have to look for. Whereas with broadcast, it's just there on your programme guide. Although, you know, so many players, so many TVs have actually got iPlayer built in these days, but uh, I still don't think iPlayer is something BBC... uh, iPlayer is something that viewers will turn to as readily as they will the sort of electronic programme guide. Yeah. Yeah. No, the only reason reason I'm hesitating is because we absolutely treat iPlayer as the BBC now. Um, Mm. We yeah, a couple of programs tonight, and we go straight to iPlayer rather than bother with the. Uh, oh, the I early. think yeah. Well, we're Doctor Who fans. We're what's known as early adopters. Yeah, but if you look at my wife as well, but yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at the viewing figures for what series nine of Doctor Who or Sherlock, 
you're getting roughly a third of those are on iPlayer. Mm. And that is a significant number. But I think just as significant is the fact that two thirds of those still aren't on iPlayer. Do you know what I mean? Mm. That's still showing that two thirds of the population looks to their electronic program guide rather yeah, than no, their iPlayer. Turn on the television and say what's on, what's on now. Exactly. We do it as a novelty. We say, "Oh, let's just see what's on now." Mm. Yeah. Whereas for most people, it's still what's on now. Mm. Oh, I can't find anything. Oh, should we go to the iPlayer and see what we can catch up with? Mm. So, well, there's a, there's obviously a changing relationship between people and the telly, mm. and obviously. We're somewhere near the cusp of television on demand taking over altogether. Mm. I mean, this is why Sky advertised box sets on their television commercials is because they know that their market is for television on demand Mm. and Amazon Prime and all these other. Mm. But Amazon Prime is still getting only a fraction of what the BBC and ITV are getting on broadcast television. So we're not at the cusp of television on demand taking over, but it's certainly on the way. Mm. And I think class was, you know, the BBC's way of making a trial into those waters. And I think they've, and you know, you get the impression that they felt disappointed by the way it had gone. But actually, you look at those numbers and something like The Man in the High Castle or whatever, a lot of these shows that are being made by Amazon Prime or Netflix or whatever, they're not actually getting figures above what class were I wouldn't have thought except they're obviously doing it globally Mm. and this is why the BBC have got to wait or or this is why we as commentators (coughs) have to wait and see what happens in America before we can really understand what the whole thing with class was Mm. Mm. alright then let's talk about series 10 Okay, we'll do what we usually do I guess and go through the episodes but first any general impressions about Series 10? I mean, we talked a bit about the fact that we thought it was going to be a bit more Stephen Moffat off the leash a bit and having fun. It doesn't sound like it's going to be more nostalgic, more Peter Capaldi being given the toys that he's always wanted. Well... There's sort of elements, <clears throat> I think. Well, there's the Mondesi and Cybermen. Yeah, and Daleks the... and Missy and... Well... Oh, well, Missy's not, not really nostalgia, well, is it? Yeah. It's a recurring thing. Mm. And the Daleks. Well, okay, then let's talk about episode one. Yeah. Because that's where the Daleks are, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But episode one's not about the Daleks. Right. From what I can gather, the Daleks are just an incidental part in it. Cool. And that and that shot with the trailer that came out ages ago with the Movellans in it. Mm-hmm. So that's... So the Movellans then aren't going to be a central part of that story either. That's just going to be... I like that idea that, well, if it is that, that they kind of cut in on the edge of the... Of a story that's happening elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we've not... We don't know anything about it. We've not been going to spoiler sites. Mm. And the the thing about spoiler sites is they only give you a hint of what's been filmed unless the script or the episodes leaked you don't get much of an idea of what the story is from... also, am I, so am I wrong but recently it used to be much easier for people to spoil stories because they did more location filming but now they're starting to do more interior more studio based well they did more right? location stuff on Stephen Moffat's first two series right 
Well, in fact, I think they've done more location work altogether on Stephen Moffat's because of the move into HD. Right, yes. And it's... In the move into HD, it's become a lot more expensive and time-consuming to maybe, build studio sets. Maybe because they're going abroad a lot more for location work. But there just seems that to be less of... escaping, doesn't yeah. there? Mm. But but the first episode, obviously, is the introduction to Pearl Mackey. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, at least some, if not most, of that first episode is going to have to take place in contemporary Earth, right? Yeah. And the Dalek bit of that story is the Dalek war with the Mervellans somewhere in outer space, right? Mm-hmm. So that's not going to take up the major part of the episode unless he literally just picks Pearl Mackey up and takes her off for an adventure. Which I suppose is possible because we've never had that, have we? No. And he does say, Stephen Moffat has said, I think, this is going to be a way of introducing a companion that's going to be different from what we've seen before. Mm. So maybe he will pick her up, take her off and have an adventure with the Daleks and then, you know, go into episode two or whatever. But here's the thing. There was a working title which was a star in her eye. Yeah. Which, I mean, obviously titles will have sort of double meanings and things. But a star in her eye seemed to suggest to me a sort of... uh, situation whereby like a Donna thing where when we re-meet Donna she has this idea of going off into space and having adventures but the sort of idea of that is that you pick up a companion who's not fulfilling her potential Mm. so a star in her eye says to me that Pearl Mackey's playing somebody who's not fulfilling her potential and the doctor's the person who comes in and says right here we go this Mm. is how to fulfill your potential Potential. Mm-hmm. And obviously the star thing is because, you know, outer space and what have you. Yeah. But now it's going to be called The Pilot. Right. Which was also a working title. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> which also is kind of has a double meaning because Pilot, obviously, in terms of a first episode of a yeah. TV series, <laughs> is uh, this is what we're going to be doing with I mean, this the, TV series. The other alternative with a star in her eye. And there's there's a kind of a, a, a string of Stephen Moffat companions who mean something more than yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Say. so that it, it could mean that she su- was it suggests that there's something about her that the Doctor is interested in yeah yeah and he picks up on that very quickly and the star in her eye could literally mean I don't know or yeah or even it could mean. literally mean that she's like an alien who's stranded yeah. on Earth and mm-hmm. he sees that yeah there the, are the lots of different ways that could be taken yeah. So the pilot. Well, there's lots of different ways that can be taken. But what that, I don't know, what that suggests to me is, the pilot, obviously, is the Doctor, the pilot of the TARDIS. And the first episode, I don't know. This could be Nardo, because he can fly it now. Yeah, but no, but what I'm saying is, the first episode being called the Mm. pilot suggests to me that the focus in that, or a focus in that episode, is going to be on what the pilot does, piloting the ship. It sort of suggests to me that actually that first episode won't have a story, but like you were talking about a few minutes ago about an episode where you get flashbacks to all different things, Mm. it could be that there's some brief story that takes place on Earth that takes up 15 minutes of the episode, and then we get four insights into things the Doctor does. The Daleks, War with the Morvelans... Maybe they go back into history for 10 minutes of the episode. It could be that that first episode, if it's going to be genuinely different from how we're 
normally introduced to companions. Mm. It could be that that first episode is a series of four or five ten-minute adventures where we get to see outer space, the future, the past, and we actually get that Russell T. Davis thing where you get one on contemporary Earth, then a trip to the future, then a trip to the past, all compressed into one forty-five minutes, so that Pearl Mackie gets her whole introduction to the world of the Doctor mm. in that first episode. That's what the pilot suggests to me. That sounds like it could work if there was an overarching threat to it. So if it was more like Possibly. the chase, but done right. Rather, well, possibly, than, yeah. rather than a compilation of four short stories that presumably they have to be linked. Presumably <clears throat> there has to be some sort of, some sort of, yeah. But you don't even necessarily threat. have to do that because the opening episode for all the, all the companions has always been about the companions' sort of emotional journey in mm. seeing these things. So the overarching plot across the 45 minutes could literally just be Pearl Mackey's reaction to all these different things. I think they well, yeah. I think there's even more than that to be satisfying. I think I'd find it very frustrating if it was just... Yeah, but you're a Cyberman. <laughs> well, no. Well, okay. But I'm, I mean, for, for a coherent episode, particularly the first episode in quite a while, I think it needs, I don't know, it needs a strong story to it. I don't know, you have a strong emotional story for the companion. Yeah, I think it needs a, a strong actual, like, actual story. I don't know, Russell T. Davis got away with it for years without doing a strong actual story for his first episode each year. I think they were very simple stories, his first stories. They weren't just emotional, they were, but they were still strong as in distinctive. They were coherent. I mean, well, yeah, time. but maybe the distinctive bit of this could be. Anyway, I've yes. just thrown it out there as an idea. Yeah. Maybe we'll get all of Pearl Mackey's first sort of journeys into space and into the past rolled up into one. Probably won't be. Mm-hmm. But you know what I mean? If the Daleks are in that episode and the focus of that episode isn't the Daleks, that suggests to me that we're going to see bits and pieces of things. Maybe just that one thing is going to be the only bit and piece of things in there. But I don't know, it just suggests to me, with it being called the pilot, that we could see several bits and pieces. I don't know, the rest of what we've got then is just glimpses of things we've seen on trailers. Um, Second episode is by the guy who wrote In the Forest of the Night. Good. Well, yeah, what do we think of that? It's fun, yeah. I mean, actually, I'm more excited by him writing a second episode than I was about him writing that first episode. I thought the first episode, I don't think it was the greatest of the series, but I think it had huge potential. I think it had flaws, but it had huge potential. So I'm excited to see a second episode. Where he can and consolidate. He's a, really, he's a really big, like, lyrical writer. writer. Yeah. So, so, yeah. Well, and also, when you do something for the first time that's not necessarily in your ballpark. Part of that first time you do it is a learning progression. Mm. And then when you do it a second time, you bring the things you've learned. Yeah. And obviously this second episode, this is the one set somewhere in outer space, right? That was filmed in Spain and has the emoji robots in it. Okay, yeah. So this is a... Whereas that first one was very much a fantasy episode... Mm. This one looks like it's going to be much more of a sci-fi episode. Yeah. So it's sort of girl who no girl who waited. Potentially, episodes. the thing about it is, it might be just a, yeah. I thought that, but then I thought, is that just the robots that are making me think? Possibly, that? but setting, setting tone maybe. Mm. Yeah, some of the the 
set photos that have been released of that, the sci-fi locations, kind of have that sort of clean, cold, expansive, yeah. clean sort yeah. of sci-fi feel of the girl who waited. The opposite of in the Forest of the Night. In fact. <clears throat> yeah, polar opposite. And the well, what struck me about that is apparently there's been a bit of a backlash about this. The emoji robots. That's a very, that's a very Russell T Davis yeah. type idea, but one that Russell T Davis, I don't think ever would have no. done. So it's sort of, it's it's another one of those things to to me until we've seen it, and I'll probably be proven completely wrong. But until we've seen it, it's another one of those things where it's sort of a let's do a Russell T Davis with knobs on type mm. thing. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So that's, um, I don't know, that could be a really interesting episode. Yeah. I mean, it's also what you do with science fiction. That's what science fiction is. You mm. take a modern, you know, present concept and then attenuate it across into the future to see where it might end up. And the thing about the emoji thing is, a bit like those handbots, it's one of those ideas, and I suppose a bit like the Smilers as well, although the Smilers was kind of thrown away a bit in The Beast Below. But it's one of those ideas that does lend itself to having a bit of fun. And when I say having a bit of fun, I don't mean going silly or whatever. But I mean, it's one of those ideas where you can sit down and say, well, what is it about that? And then, as you say, extrapolating something sci-fi out of it. I don't know. It looks mm. to me like that could be a really interesting one. And the, and what strikes me as well about that is that Stephen Moffat stuck it second in the running order. And when you've got a year and a half away from the series, and when you're coming back, back in your spring slot, slot, and hopefully in a 7pm slot, and with particular attention on the series because it's a new companion and because Peter Capaldi said it's his last series, that second episode is going to be fairly crucial. Mm -hmm. So if you stuck it in the second slot, it's going to be A, striking, and B, hopefully something sort of quite solid. Mm. The third one's the historical one. That's the one that Sarah Dollard's written, who wrote Face the Raven. Oh, good. So Face the Raven, even though it was set on contemporary Earth, mm. had a very old world feel yeah, anyway. Victorian. Because it was yeah. set in a place that had sort of got stuck in Victorian times. Mm -hmm. So I guess for her, it was a fairly obvious choice to get her to do Something that's actually set in Victorian times. Or is it... No, it's 1814, so it's actually pre-Victorian, but mm -hmm. same century, essentially. So that's set in London at um, what they call a frost fair. Mm -hmm. You know what this is? It's where the Thames freezes. Yeah, the, and they have like the a marketplace on the Thames. Mm. And there's some kind of beast under the Thames that's dragging people through the ice. So it's effectively it's it's drawing on Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. That mm. kind of that kind of setting period kind of style. Sort of um well although it's a hundred years out, but I guess sort of Fantastic Beasts is also yeah. doing the same thing. Let's take the sort of fantasy thing that's currently popular and go back actually into the past and do it. Because Harry Potter is very much a Victorian type thing, except it's set contemporaneously. Mm -hmm. 
So what they're doing is actually saying, well, okay, let's go back and actually do it in Victorian times, right? Yeah. Or 1814 is obviously pre-Victorian, but you know what I'm saying. Yes. <coughs> and there's actually been quite a bit of that in the trailers, hasn't there? Yes, but yeah. they're still filming, aren't they? They're still filming. Yeah, so the earlier tra- trailers, trailers had to, yeah, of necessity, yeah. only show things from the episodes mm-hmm. that already filmed. But that looks like quite an expensive episode mm. in terms of wrangling extras and doing external shots because there's lots of shots of people. The other thing about that episode is I have seen photographs lying about from that because they would have filmed it outside on the location. UK. Yeah, yeah. So presumably it makes sense to use that in the trailer because people will have already seen or because those images are already in the public arena. So you might as well, you know, there's no spoiling to... to Same reason why you announced the Bondasian Cybermen 24 hours before they're about to go out on location for the first time, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, I think we then start getting into stuff we know even less about, don't we? Mm -hmm. So you've got The Caretaker, which is written by Mike Bartlett. Who's the guy who... Is it called The Caretaker? Well, I don't know if it's called The Caretaker or not. Because we've had the care... we've had a story mm. called The Caretaker, haven't we? The yeah. character's called The Caretaker. Okay, That's as okay. much as we know right. about it. And Mike Bartlett is... is presumably, I, So there was a rumour of a prestigious writer from the North. Yeah, um, about a year probably ago. Probably him. And yeah. that's Mike Bartlett. Yeah. And he's the guy who wrote Dr. Foster. The thing yeah. with... Um, and I think he wrote a play, a play called Cock which was very good. So he's a big theatre theatre writer. I oh, think. I said the caretaker. I meant the landlord. Okay, okay. That makes more sense. And actually, it wouldn't surprise That's me at all. That's the David Suchet character. Yes. yes. Yeah. And that will presumably, yeah, presumably be the title of the, <laughs> title of the episode. Well, you'd imagine. You'd imagine there's a good chance it will be. Mm. What strikes me as odd about that is that they've put that fourth in the running order mm-hmm. after the episode where... Sarah Dollard's writing about something under the ice, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the one with the landlord is about something under the floorboards. Right. You'd have thought they'd have split those up in the running order. Because although, in many other respects, they may not have things in common, from looking at pictures of David Suchet, I'm not sure that it's set in the past, but it looks like it has, again, a slightly old-world feel about it's it. It's got a gothic feel. Yeah. So you're going to sort of end up with two episodes in a row that have a sort of old-fashioned feel to them or a vintage feel in some way, Mm. both of which deal with stuff that's hiding under something. I guess guess where it could be saved is in the tone. So so episode episode three could be a jolly run-around romp along sort of Mark Gatiss lines. Episode four could be a gothic. Really creepy. Yeah, or alternatively... Episode four could be an Amy's Choice, Simon Nye style <clears throat> story, whereas episode three could be, you know, Robots of Sherwood. I didn't, yeah. Well, we'll find out. Yeah. It just struck me as odd that there'd mm-hmm. be two episodes in a row where there's something hiding under something, which seems a bit close. And I, I don't know, you'd have thought they'd split them up, but I don't know. I guess we'll find out. It was made in the same house that they made Blinking. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. But they've also been back to that house in between for something else. Which would be the snowmen. Right. Okay. The mansion in the snowmen as well was, mm. I think. Um, Jamie Matheson's back for episode five. Jamie Matheson did... 
He did Flatline and Mummy, Mummy on, on the Orange Express. Express. Okay. And mm. then he did The Girl Who Died. Okay. Okay. And obviously he's the one who a lot of people were hoping would take over from Stephen Moffat. But I don't think... But, yeah, here's the thing. With the BBC, it's about production experience as much as whether you're writing wows the fans. Mm -hmm. So although the fans were impressed with at least two of his episodes, if not necessarily the third one quite so much, Mm. fan is the name the fans wanted, but maybe he'd be the guy who would do it after Chris Chibnall if Jamie Matheson gets more production experience in, in between. And there's nothing to say that Chris Chibnall might not write as many episodes as Stephen Moffat wrote and bring in writers, more writers. If the writer's room idea takes off, um, then you can end up with Matheson having a, a major role in the writer's room. And so, I mean, if they're restructuring the way they write Doctor Who, which it sounds like they might be, then, then that still could happen. I don't think we actually know much about episode five. Oh, Charles Palmer's back to direct it okay. from Voyage of the Damned. Yeah, it's like very few of the Russell T. Davis directors have actually come back. Mm. I think he's only about the third or fourth one. Okay. So that's quite interesting. Um, and episode six, and this is the one that possibly might be intriguing, is written by Stephen Moffat. Wow. So episode so he's absent from episode one until that's quite unusual. Isn't it? Well, yeah. Normally the showrunner does the first and two at the end, mm-hmm. and then maybe a two-part. Well, there's normally a sort of, or it's very rare that there's odd episodes by the showrunner in the middle. Mm. So for Stephen Moffat to be coming back in episode six, just before the halfway mark, well, this, this is a sort of a although listen. Listen had that. Listen. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Listen was kind so of an this, odd one out. This might be the listen. Well, it could be, but it's not a placeholder. Yeah. But episodes five and six were both recorded at the same time as, or both recorded in the same block. And for a while, I think people thought that episode five and six was going to be a two-parter that was co-written by Matheson and Moffat. But I think the thinking now is that it's two single-parters, one by Matheson and one by Moffat. There is some filming abroad on this production blog. I think they're back in Spain again. I could be wrong. But also, this is where Missy comes back. Mm. So I'm going to assume that Missy is in episode six by Stephen Moffat. And what I'm thinking here then is rather than it be a standalone in the middle of the series, like, listen... It's actually going to be an arc episode in the middle of the series. Mm. And whatever it is, because regardless of the fact that I think this is going to be Stephen Moffat sort of off the chain a bit, there's still going to be some kind of an arc. So, it's still going to be building somewhere, right? So what, I'm, what I've heard recently, <coughs> you've probably heard it as well, is that there is a three, there's a three-part story in this, in this season. And I know that it includes Toby Whithouse, and I'm trying to work out... It could be six, seven, and eight. Three-part series? Yeah, story. yeah. With oh, a, no, I haven't heard that at all. So three interlinked episodes by different people, but with um, an alien menace called something like the Monk or something like that, who appears in the trailer. So a recurring a, a recurring villain across three parts, three parts or three episodes. So essentially, oh, so essentially it would be three standalone stories with the same villain. I don't know how linked they would be. So it may be three... In, well, the impression I got, they're calling it a three-part story, which would suggest it's got 
two cliffhangers. Oh, that's interesting. And this might start. It might start with the Stephen with episode six, uh, six, or it might start with seven, eight, nine. No, nine is the Mark Gatiss one. Yeah, so it could be, but he could be writing the conclusion of the three part story. I can't remember which which three episodes are linked. But if Missy is in episode six, I think I read that Missy is going to be involved in this. Three-part well, she's in story. eleven and twelve. So she's in six, eleven, and twelve. The three okay. Stephen. So Moffat maybe it's ones. seven, eight, nine. Well, okay, let's talk about what's in. Bearing in mind, I'm burying... I'm, I read this a couple of days ago, and I'm trying to root it out of my memory. Well, I've not heard that so, at all. Called The Monk, you think? I think the, the the main... Yeah, there is a really... The meddling monk? There is, no, there's a really creepy sort of desiccated villain in the trailer. Looks a little bit like the the god in the rings of Akatan. <clears throat> that kind of... That kind of, you know... Decaying monk. I think it's the monk. Oh, but it could just be like the meddling monk could decaying be. at the end of his lifespan, yes, like the master was yeah. in the deadly it might assassin. Not, it might not be the monk. I might have made that up. I might have, like, I might have misremembered. But I'm, yeah. not mis- I'm not misremembering the three-part story. Well, well, okay. Is how's this for an idea then? Episode six, Stephen Moffat, Missy sets up the trajectory of the series for episodes 11 and 12. Mm-hmm. So whatever kicks off in 6 concludes in 11 and 12. Yeah. Then you get a three-part... Episode 7 is by Peter Harness. Yeah. Episode 8 is by Toby Whithouse. Mm-hmm. And episode 9 is by Mark Gatiss. Yes. And the only one of those three that we really know much about is the Mark Gatiss one, right? Because mm-hmm. of his little videos and the fact that it's the Ice Warriors. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well... Yeah. The Ice Warriors, maybe the Ice Warriors aren't the bad guys in this one, and whoever this monk or whoever is, has got some fiendish plot, and the Doctor ends up saving the Ice Warriors from the monk. Mm-hmm. So actually, the conclusion of that story could be Mark Gatiss in episode 9. The one thing that I think mitigates against that is that Mark Gatiss seems to, like Stephen Moffat had under Russell T. Davis, Mark Gatiss seems to have his um, own agency in the series. Yeah, Sleep No More, for instance, was the only episode of Series 9 that didn't have anything to do with the arc. And the Ice Warriors, the idea of the Ice Warriors sounds probably very much like a standalone, something that would suit a standalone thing. But we know there's a woman Ice Warrior in it now, and that's the new Ice Warrior that oh, really? he's done. Well, that was in the nice. trailer. Okay, no, I missed that one. Oh, really? Oh, no, it's, it's very obviously a female okay. Ice Warrior. Um... It's also the face that flies towards you in the first trailer, wasn't it? Yeah. The end. yeah. I think I've seen the suggestion that it's going to be called Queen of Mars. Cool. Okay. So, I mean... Ah, uh, see, that's a play on... Um... John Carter? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and yeah, yeah and the part know. of the inspiration mm-hmm. is Rice Burrows. Yeah. So, mm. so whatever it is, it, it will be on Mars... And it will involve Ice Warrior Society, which we've never seen. Right. Right? So you've already got these. And he says it's going to be like Rice Burrows, right? Mm. And also what that says to me is sort of King Solomon's Mines and stuff like that, where it's going to be more of an adventure thing rather than a scary thing. Mm. Yeah, and that fits in with things like John Carter and stuff as well, doesn't it? Mm. So if that's more of an adventure... So... this. Maybe the three-parter kicks off in six, and six yes. actually has got two storylines, one involving 
well, when I say two storylines, what I don't mean is two storylines. One storyline in there, which can part of which continues into seven and eight, and part of which continues into eleven and twelve. I was going to say they definitely said it's three consecutive. So they, so what I was reading say, was could, could be they six, said eleven and twelve. They said it's they? very rare that the the new series, the return two thousand five new series, has three parters. It came close with Utopia, Sound yeah, Drums, yeah. Last of the Time Wars, but that this was. This was considered to be a three-part. Oh, yeah, that's I mean, a bit it, vague, it could isn't be, it? Yeah. Well, who knows? Anyway, nice to have Peter Harness and Toby Whitehouse mm-hmm. back, right? Yeah. Even though we know very little about what they're doing. Um, you've got Rona Monroe in episode ten, right? Which is the first writer who wrote for the classic series. Mm-hmm. I don't think. She, if you'd have said to somebody, "Oh, there'd be a writer from the classic series back," I don't think she'd have been the first name on anybody's lips. She was I think s- she'd have been the sensible. Yeah, she choice. was the second name <coughs> I considered. But what I mean is, oh no, no. What I, I mean, I don't mean if you actually think about it. I mean, if somebody says to you, "Writer from the classic series," if your you, first thoughts you are going to be people like Terence Dix and Robert Holmes. If right? you have a fantasy, yeah, okay. So what I mean is... If I don't think about it. Yeah. I, yeah. But what I, so if you think about it, she's kind of an obvious choice. Yeah. But what I mean is, when you say a writer from the classic series, her actual bit of the classic series is such a tiny part of it mm-hmm. and is actually probably more like the modern series than the classic series. Mm-hmm. So to have a writer coming back from the classic series is not the fan fantasy of having the classic series come back for an episode. No. Which is, you know, I think when it was first mentioned there'd be a writer from the classic series, I think in, a light bulb went off over some people's heads. Oh, it'll be like having the classic series back for 45 minutes. I don't think that's what people are going to get. No. So she's written episode 10. Hers has got a title, hasn't it? It's Hers Eaters of Light. She tweeted this out, didn't she? That's what it says there. Oh, does it? Oh, I can't see it from here. Oh, right. Even with my glasses on. I'm reading it upside down. Light of Eaters. No. Eaters (laughs) of Light. light. Yes. It is confirmed. It's called the Eaters of Light. She confirmed on Twitter or somewhere, I think. Or in an interview or something. So, Eaters of Light, that suggests this is going to be one of those... um, What's the word I'm looking for? Conceptual? Yes, conceptual sci-fi ideas. Yes, yeah. Which, is which, also, would, which makes sense with Ronan Munro. And also makes sense with the Stephen Moffat series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that would seem to me like, rather than getting a flashback to the classic series, actually you've got somebody coming in who will be able to do a Moffat. Yeah. And actually, going back to series five even, but six more so, doing a Moffat, the girl who waited, the God Complex, they were both very much doing a Moffat. Yes. Mm. So that's a thing. God, I like the God. The more I, the more I remember the God context, the, the more better I like it. Yeah, yeah. It's very strange. Oh no, that was a really good episode. Yeah. What has um, Rana Munro got up to since Doctor Who then? Well, she's mainly theatre and radio. Yeah, but she has done a bit of other telly as well, I think, but not much. But yeah, but I think she's like regarded in theatre circles as one of the modern writers mm. so to get her back onto the telly mm. it's a slightly odd choice in that Stephen Moffat since series 5 has tended to 
go mostly with people who are very experienced in television. Well, the, I mean, the good thing about going with someone like Rowan Munro is Stephen Moffat's now presumably so good at taking writers and adapting them for Doctor Who without losing their distinctive voice. And Ronan Munro will have a really distinctive voice because that's what theatre writers have. Yeah. Someone like Mike Bartlett as well. I mean, he's written Doctor Foster, but also he's known for his, his theatre work. So it would be an exercise in in presumably editing their scripts, rewriting their scripts so they're workable Doctor Who stories without whilst retaining the, the core idea and the voice. Well, what it strikes me is... I keep saying what it strikes me tonight. That's become my catchphrase for this episode. <laughs> in right in series five, he did a sort of Russell T Davis. Moffat did a bit of a Russell T Davis, but with Moffat type ideas. Mm-hmm. And then in series six, he went very much Stephen Moffat and did something that was sort of radically different. And then in series seven, he did a sort of series seven is a essentially, apart from the odd bit here and there, is basically a bunch of standalone stories that are there more for entertainment than to add up to anything big, right? Mm. So then with Series 8, he does something that kind of goes back to the introducing the Doctor in a sort of classic sense template. And he does a sort of Colin Baker-type storyline in midway through the series. He has the Doctor undergoing this transformation from the grumpy doctor into something more like what we know. And then in series nine, again, he does something quite radical, which was the entire series made up of sort of multi-part stories with a theme that goes through the entire series a lot more heavily than probably we'd ever had until that point. And then in series 10, it looks like he's going more for the series... Well, not more for the series seven approach of everything being standalone, but more for the Series 7 approach of it being a slightly more laid-back approach to how much viewer involvement you might necessarily need. For instance, if you've got three stories with the same villain, but they're being written by three different people, what's carrying on between those three stories is the villain rather than the plot, probably. Mm. So something like a recurring villain in the sense of the master in series season eight of the original series i mean if if that three if i'm not gone mad and that three episode three interlinked episode idea and also it's kind of foreshadowing the the final two-parter which is likely to be so if you've got a big weighty three interlinked episodes in the middle of a series there's a good chance it's foreshadowing the final two-parter as well that sounds like it's also a good opportunity whilst they're having fun with the series, but also to build up towards yeah. what is effectively Capaldi's last hurrah with, I mean, or build up towards possibly a cliffhanger for the, the Christmas special. Which well, I'd in, like a, in a slightly lighter way than they normally would. Yeah. Rather than hitting you over yeah. the head with the yeah. hybrid, or rather than having a very involved story about Clara and her boyfriend, mm. what you do is throw in a villain, something yeah. like The Master... Yeah. in season eight where you can watch any of the stories in season eight without needing to have seen the others mm. and yet they're all linked sort of by having the master in them mm-hmm. so but what i'm saying is if he's gone back to that sort of or what he might have done is gone back to the series seven sort of tonal aspect and said right let's get it right this time because i think most people realize that this series seven wasn't what it was supposed to be 
didn't live up to its potential. Maybe he said, right, let's do it, do it right, and make sure it lives up to its potential, and have this fun season that does build to things, mm. and that does do all the other things that Doctor Who does, mm. but does it but does it with a lightness of touch that perhaps hasn't been there in the last two Peter Capaldi years. And then, of course, we get to the final two-parter, which is the one with the Mondasian Cybermen in, right? Yeah. yeah. So... Is it Mondasian or Mondasian? I'd say Mondasian. Okay. Let's call the whole thing off. Well, you... <laughs> when you um, extend words like that with suffixes you do change the pronunciation of the word to allow for the suffix. Yes. So, Mondasian would need to have two S's, right? Everybody sits and looks very thoughtful. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, I need my housemate here. She's a linguist. She oh, really? Did, yeah. No, I think... I, Maybe no. it's a northern thing. I don't know, you've put me on the spot now, but there are plenty of other <laughs> words where if you suffix or prefix them, it changes the pronunciation let's of the say word Monda- Let's say Mondasian for now. Mm, okay. Well, is it Telosian or Telosian? Telosian. Because that's exactly yeah, the same no, thing. Yeah, you're actually right, yeah. Mondasian. Telosian. I've only ever heard Telosian, mm. never tel- yeah, Telosian. Mm. A Telosian is actually a very ugly way of saying the word. So the the the, the, the old Cybermen are coming back. <laughs> well, I guess we won't know why or how mm. until we get there. Right, we said we'd only say... Everybody knows that, that if you're listening to a Series 10 preview episode, the chances are you're going to hear something that you didn't already know. And we've said we've only going to say spoilers that are out in the public domain. Well, I'm not shying away from the fact that there are also modern Cybermen in the same story, right? Okay. So we talk about that. So it's not going to be spare parts or anything like that, no. right? So, So I'm not going to try and guess what it is, but what I will say is, yes... Peter Capaldi's getting his sort of wish of having the Mondasian Cybermen back, right? Mm. And obviously, this is his last hurrah, essentially, apart from the Christmas special. So, this is the last chance that he and Stephen Moffat have to do something substantial Mm. in an ongoing sense in the series for people to remember him and them by, both mm. of them. Mm. This will be what they will think of, presumably, as the two-parter that they want the people to have as their memory of Peter Capaldi's Doctor and of Stephen Moffat's showrunnership. Mm. So, I mean, but the thing that gets me there is to have the Mondasian Cybermen and the new Cybermen. Well, you know I'm not a fan of the Cybermen. So, obviously, that's working against me from the start. But it just it just makes me think they're going to have to do something really brilliant and really clever, mm. or else this is just going to be a convolution too far, isn't well, the it? Thing about the, the thing about the Cybermen is, I always think they're a really fantastic idea that they've never done right mm. since the, 19, the 1960s. Pretty much, <clears throat> and but they're always they're always trying to do something good with them, and I quite like that idea that one day they might actually do a really good Cyberman story, <clears throat> and maybe this will be the really good Cyberman. Well, they've story. been nudging at the edges of it for yeah, the last got, few oh, yeah, years. Got close. Yeah, but, but I did. But, but they don't give up. <laughs> no, but looking at this again, 
if you're going to have modern Cybermen and old Cybermen, mm. it just strikes me it's going to be more about the Cybermen than, say, Spare Parts was about the concept well, yeah. of the Cybermen. Yeah, it just takes you away from the concept rather than towards it. Possibly, possibly I mean, the not. Other, the knows? other thing that strikes me is, so I'm trying to get my head around, so Capaldi's in, presumably, unless you're... you're Fantasy comes true. He's in the Christmas special. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. Christmas special is a regeneration story. Mm. I think to have that just as a standalone regeneration story, I can't see them doing that. I can't see them building up to a regeneration story over the course of an hour. Well, they did it with the time of the Doctor, off. and because it's six months except, away from the end of the series, except they built up to time of the Doctor. The time of the Doctor was the third in the of the Doctor trilogy. So it was. So there was there was a sense of building mm. up to that. Mm. But but the important thing is you can build up to it in a sort of fan sense in that you can put things in there where fans will join the dots. But you've got to be careful not to do that for the general public who sit down on Christmas Day mm. and watch the first minutes of five five minutes of Doctor Who and think, well, I didn't see the last episode. This is making no sense. I'm turning it off. But I think with, it's a trick. So you can do both at the same time. So well, I think like you Utopia can... in the Sound of Drums. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think what they what they haven't done so far in the series is end the series on a cliffhanger, like they're doing leads, American TV that leads into the Christmas special. And I think they can do that without I without without losing the Christmas audience. You can you can construct the Christmas episode in such a way that <laughs> it still it still fills in the blanks, but it still acts as a continuing. But well, only if story. the cliffhanger and its resolution aren't tied into the plot in the way that Utopia mm-hmm. worked with the Sound of Drums. It's where, it's where Bill, is she involved in the Christmas episode? Do we know? Oh, we don't know, because until mm. it goes before the cameras, nobody will know. I mean, one, one model for what I'm thinking of is what Sherlock did. So Sherlock ended with a cliffhanger, and then they had a Christmas special that initially looked like a, re- a really bizarre standalone in the past but then, as this the episode developed, it turns out it actually is, it actually is a resolution of that cliffhanger, not a resolution, but a continuation that it's mm. set after that cliffhanger, and it's actually exploring the cliffhanger without but, losing the viewers. So I it's a Christmas the, special that has both. I think there's a fundamental difference in their Doctor Who's audiences, although obviously there's a huge crossover in people who watch both Sherlock and Doctor Who. Mm. Sherlock is essentially aimed at grown-ups. Mm. Whereas Doctor Who is essentially aimed at kids, yeah. and while kids will happily yeah. join the dots and add things up, I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about using it as a model for complexity or the way they did it, but using it as an example of a Christmas special that is both standalone but also a continuation. Yeah, you can do both at the same time, and I think it's going to need that to build up to an effective, an effective regeneration. I don't know because you look at the end of time. And everybody thought that was going to come straight out of the waters of Mars and that Russell T. Davis would have done basically exactly what you've just said. Mm. And yet he went in completely the other direction and divorced it entirely from the waters of Mars. And the thing about a regeneration is that's got the weight in itself. You don't need to bring the weight to it. If people know it's a regeneration episode, that brings the weight in and of itself. Yes, except that was still a two-parter. So well, it that was. still did have extra room to build up. It still had a cliffhanger. Well, that was, had... but Time of the Doctor wasn't. No, but Time of the Doctor was the last part of a, a trilogy. But, it, well, 
I mean, in terms built, of what? It had built up to that. I mean, it, it had built up slightly, slightly subtly, so the Doctor knew that he was going to this this place where he knew he was going to meet his end. Well, yeah, but no, but that was the and thing that was undone by the changing of the timelines in the name of the Doctor. But the name of the Doctor had introduced that idea. I mean... Well, yes, but then it had rewritten it so that it was no longer a thing. Okay. So the name of the Doctor introduces this location as being an ominous location in the Doctor's future. The, the day of the Doctor used that as an element towards the end, so they had conversations about it towards the end, so they carried on this foreshadowing, and then he goes to this place that has been set up as an ominous place in the Doctor's future. What, whatever they've rewritten it but as. But that's not a name. trilogy. I mean, it's... That's not a continuing story. It's using three three stories to to develop this kind of ominous but yeah, but setup. In the way that in the planet of the dead, somebody says there'll be no four and that's what at I, the end. And that's what I'm saying that they'll, I think they'll do with the end of this series. I think they'll they'll build up to it in that way. But what I'd also like to see is a, is a, is a cliffhanger at the end of the series. Okay. Yeah. I don't. I don't think the Christmas special is going to feature the the Mondasian Cybermen and well, some be the, fi- do, the final part of the that yeah, two-part this story. Is one thing that people because have been saying. because that would make the Christmas special just hanging out there. I think. I think there'd be a twist. I'd like to see a twist at the end <clears> of the series somehow, and maybe it will feature Cybermen. I don't know, but something God, leads on to, into the Christmas special. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's fair enough. Let's, let's not forget, it's also Moffat saying goodbye as well, isn't it? So, Yeah, but I think Stephen Moffat's already said goodbye in terms of here's my ultimate destination for where I wanted to take Doctor Who in um, Heaven Sent and Hell Bent. Mm, okay. and, and also Stephen Moffat said, I think Stephen Moffat said something that kind of means I don't want to do a Ross T Davis and make a big thing of the fact this is a handover. No, okay, yeah. Because the end of time was the end of time was so. Look at me, look at me. Mm. I well, think that's Stephen. What I, that's what I said about that last bit in the end of time. It wasn't about saying goodbye to the. No, it was the, about the production the team, Doctor. It was yeah. about Russell T. Davis saying goodbye. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. Featured elements that that were clearly aimed at. Oh yeah, yeah, and I think Stephen Moffat said it. that's absolutely what I'm not going to do. Yeah. So although obviously he'll be going, I don't think he'll be going with a flourish that says, and now I'm gone, folks. <laughs> so whatever happens at Christmas, I don't know. We have no idea what's going to happen at Christmas, but it'll probably be slightly more low-key than we think, because I don't yeah, think he'll want to do an end of time. Facilitating the end of the Twelfth Doctor rather than anything else. Yeah, yeah. And one thing that's not going to happen is that he's going to spend 900 years ageing. No. <laughs> to an old man. No. So maybe it'll go the other. Maybe it'll be a Benjamin Button. Capaldi will get younger. Get younger. Here's, CGI. Here's one rumor. I don't know how much truth there is to this, but there's a rumor that there's an episode this year with Clara in it. Really? Okay. Which people are saying, Ooh. "Oh God, you can't stop bringing people back." <laughs> well, potentially it could be an episode with a Clara Splinter. Yes. Which is what everybody thought Heaven Sent or Hellbent rather was going to be. A lot of people, a lot of the speculation about Hellbent was that it would be a Clara Splinter. Mm. Well, potentially you could have said, "Oh, that's an interesting idea. I'll use that and have an episode 
set, God knows, it could be anywhere in time and space, couldn't it, with a Clara splinter? So and, you could have a Clara splinter and episode. Clara and the Capaldi Doctor have been very, I mean, they are... Synonymous. Sort of synonymous, mm. or very in, closely interlinked. So if he's going to get be bumped off, I mean, even, I mean, Amy came back for the... Yeah. Matt Smith, they found a way of getting Amy back from Matt Smith. And essentially that took the form of a dream sequence, so it yeah. wasn't the character coming back. And that's back. A Doctor Who, was, it's almost yeah. a Doctor Who tradition to have certainly Matthew, has Matthew been. Waterhouse popping up yeah. out yeah. of your mouth. And... Certainly has been since Tom Baker. Yeah. yeah. So to get, so it could be that she turns up in a Christmas special yeah. as a splinter, yeah. or it could be that she turns up in the final two-parter. I keep saying as a splinter, whether as a splinter or not, but presumably that would be the way to facilitate it. Mm-hmm. Or it could just be that she turns up somewhere mid-series for an episode as a way of having Jenna Coleman mm. in Peter Capaldi's last series mm. so that she's essentially part of the goodbye. It could even be we discovered that actually her story wasn't as finished as we thought and the Christmas special is actually the end of Capaldi and the end of her story. Mm. Could be. Completely. I mean, the, I mean, the the idea of her rattling around in an old-style TARDIS, that's quite an attractive concept to bring back at Christmas because it's yeah. got the nostalgia, it's got humour, it's got a recognisable actress, it's potentially got Maisie Williams as well, who's also another recognisable actress, yeah, who's yeah. not quite at the level you would get as a guest star for Christmas, but not far off. So it no, sort of ticks uh, a lot of boxes. Well, and Stephen Moffat has, with his... Whereas Ross T. Davies seemed to do the name guest star thing mm. at Christmas from The Runaway Bride onwards, Stephen Moffat's done sometimes, rather than the name guest star, he's done the the sort of guest thing in the Christmas special has been the concept sometimes, yeah. rather than yeah. the person. So that could be a case of the concept mm-hmm. driving the story rather than the guest star yeah. driving the story. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm going to say something else then, but I... oh. One thing that doesn't look like it's going to happen that I thought was a possibility at the end of Series 9 was... And in Series 9, at the end, in the last episode, he dismisses Rassilon and sends him off, right? Mm. There was a potential there. I mean, only a potential, not a probability, but there was a potential there for doing a Rassilon's Revenge storyline. It just strikes me. Maybe this figure in the three-part story... Could that possibly be Rassilon? Possibly. Yeah, so maybe... maybe Eve, I'm just saying it's a, a potential thing rather than yeah. a probable or anything likely. You might Potentially. Have, you might have shacked up with the Doctor's daughter and be in the same place that she is. <laughs> and they just... Maybe not bring them back. No, um, but I mean... Or Captain Jack. Well, it's one of those things. I can't see, I can't see Moffat doing Captain Jack after sort of six yeah. years of not... It would be an odd thing to give Capaldi for his last his last story <laughs> is a is a non Torchwood Captain Jack. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It would yeah. be completely out of the blue at yeah. this point. <laughs> I mean, it's five years now since the last Torchwood, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. In in terms of viewer recognition, that's mm. sort of become dead and buried, really, hasn't it? Mm. Whereas at least with River Song, she was recent enough that. I mean, she was in the anniversary year, which was kind of high profile. Yes. Anybody got anything else they want to add? No, I think we've milked that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for as little as we know about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a nice... 
When Stephen Moffat said that he had two writers he was talking to who were coming in, I think people were expecting massive names that they'd recognise. So it's so it's not been J.K. Rowling and uh, Stephen Fry, for example. Mm. So I, we haven't had the. I suggested at the time there could be a a case where half the series would be made up of guest writers as opposed to guest stars, mm. and obviously that hasn't turned out. Well, you had an idea who that northern writer could be. I can't remember. Paul Abbott. Paul Abbott, okay. Yeah, and obviously it hasn't transpired to be him. Because, of course, he was going to write in series one. Yeah. And couldn't because Shameless took off. Right. So that hasn't happened. But it's... Apart from the final two-parter, essentially the rest of the series is all made up of single episodes by writers. Mm. Nobody's done two episodes or anything like that. And you've got a good mix of people like Toby Whithouse mm-hmm. and Mark Gatiss. Peter Harness. Yeah, and a couple of new writers or essentially new to Doctor Who writers. Mm. Not brand new to Doctor Who, but it's a nice mix of people who've been standards for the last three or four years and people who are coming into the programme. So what? So tonally, it might be that slightly more mixed bag than you sometimes get so I don't know I just when I said ages and ages ago it looked like this might be a fun series of Doctor Who I still think the indications are that it will be mm-hmm. especially with the character of Bill and with Nardole taking a much bigger part and especially now that the 12th Doctor is in much more of a fun place than he ever was with Clara mm. Because we never actually got to see the fun episodes with Clara. We only saw the serious ones. Yeah. So I don't know. I suppose my final thought is it still looks like it's going to be a livelier, funner... Less predictable. And less sort of dark. Not that it was predictable. Do you know what I mean? But it just... Well, in Series 8, you always knew that Danny Pink would turn up somewhere. Mm-hmm. And in Series 9, you always knew that the episode would point you somewhere towards what the hybrid was going to be. This looks, looks, might not be, but looks at the moment like it might be less involved in that way. Mm. Right, I'm not quite sure when this episode goes out, but I think we've got one more episode before we actually get into the series reviews. So we'll be assembled for the reviews of the episodes as we were before. We'll watch them on the Saturday night, record the episode on the Saturday night, and with luck, the uh, review episodes will go out on the Sunday. I think there's one more episode in between, and I guess we'll probably find out what that is just a little bit before the listener does. (laughs) (laughs) But until then, I was JR. I was Simon. I was Matt. And we'll speak again soon. 